Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast where a middle-aged wastrel plays adventure game books out loud on the internet. My name is Hieronymus J. Doom and this is another bonus episode made possible by the generosity of my patron backers over at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. This is a really interesting episode because it sees the return of the Dungeons and Dragons Endless Quest series. We covered one of these books, Raid on Nightmare Castle, way back in the distant past of 2020, which was only two actual years ago, but was approximately a hundred years ago in terms of how I feel I've aged since then. At the time, I was not especially impressed with TSR's effort to get some of that sweet, sweet choose-your-own-adventure dollar, but a lot has changed in the world since then. TSR is no more, and Wizards of the Coast are in charge of the Dungeons & Dragons franchise. They have chosen to revive the long-dormant Endless Quest series and produced a range of six books which hew closer to the current product line. The one I've chosen is Escape from Castle Ravenloft, which is based on the beloved Ravenloft module from the early days of Dungeons & Dragons, and which was updated as the well-received Curse of Strahd in 2016. Ravenloft is very much Dungeons & Dragons doing Hammer Horror, with Strahd as their answer to Count Dracula. I very much like the idea of revisiting this old product line and creating a limited series which tries to make it fit within the existing range. I'm a sad old gamer and I have very fond memories of the gothic horror of the Ravenloft setting from back when I were a lad, so it was great to see this weird realm of ghosts and vampires revisited by Wizards of the Coast in this form. I also like the fact they've only done six books. Endless Quest was always going to be a niche product, and in theory, a limited run could be the ideal way to channel some nostalgia without staying its welcome. Some elements of the Endless Quest format haven't changed at all. There's still no system, despite the cover declaiming that you are the cleric. We are in full choose-your-own-adventure territory here, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does mean adjusting my expectations a little bit. It's also short, only 120 pages, so there's a limit to how complicated things can possibly get in terms of intricate design. Again, that's something that doesn't have to be an issue. I very much enjoyed the He-Man book we covered way back when, and that was extremely brief. One thing that has definitely changed is the production values. Escape from Castle Ravenloft is a handsome hardcover book crammed with full-colour illustrations. I doubt that they were commissioned specifically for this volume, but still, it's nice to see. I'm not the biggest fan of the Wizards of the Coast house style because I'm old and I fear change, but you can't deny that as an object this book looks like a prestige affair. One weird thing is that the cover doesn't exactly scream gothic adventure. There's a serviceable illustration of the character we're going to be playing, the cleric, which is a neat idea. It really foregrounds the character and makes it central. That's a key feature of role-playing. But there's not really anything indicating the kind of adventure she's about to have. There is a tower just about visible in the background, but to be honest, she looks more like she's going to be tangling with D4 goblins than with a vampire lord. Escape from Castle Ravenloft was written by Matt Forbeck, with art by the following people. Adam Paquette, Autumn Rain Turkel, Ben Oliver, Bryn Metheny, Chris Seaman, Claudio Pozas, Conceptopolis, Darken, Eric Belial, Jed Chevria, Jesper Ejsing, Kiernan Yana, Luke Hurwitz, Lars Grant West, Mark Bame, Milivoj Curran, Richard Witters, Siddharth Chaturvedi, Vincent Dutrait, Vincent Prose, Wayne England, Zach Stella, and Zoltan Boros. The cover illustrations were by Eric Belisle, Mark Ben, and Ben Oliver. And the design was by Wendy Bartlett. So with that giant list of credits out of the way, I think now is the perfect time to dive straight into Escape from Castle Ravenloft. So there is a uh, a little instruction page, sort of slightly patronisingly, telling us that you don't need to read this book in page order, but actually make some choices. There's a front piece page with a fairly cool picture of a vampire on a black flamey horse. 
and we're on to the first section which is faced by a quite attractive dark gloomy picture of a man I take to be uh, Strahd himself. It is very much in that painterly Wizards of the Coast house style but you can't argue that it's not very very nicely rendered. You wake in a large four-poster bed in a musty room that smells of cold stone and ancient death. As you look out a wide window, you witness the last glow of the setting sun muffled behind thick clouds as it fades away, leaving darkness to take the sky. Where are you, and how did you get here? The last you remember, you were leaving the town of Daggerford after presiding over evening service as a cleric of Tyr, the god of justice part of an outreach effort you've been making from your nearby home of Waterdeep. As you set out on the road, a thick fog enveloped you, making it almost impossible to see past your horse's nose. Straight away, it slightly irritated me by locating the cleric in the Forgotten Realms setting. I never liked the Forgotten Realms as a setting, even in the 90s. I was an awkward hipster role player, even as a 12-year-old. I recognise that it is now the default setting and we just have to live with it, but all the same, it is one of, if not the blandest fantasy world I think I've ever come across. I genuinely actually prefer Greyhawk. At least Greyhawk feels slapdash and weird. Maybe you should have turned back, but you could barely see the road in any direction. You stopped as you pondered your predicament. And that's when you saw a pair of glowing red eyes emerged from the shrouding blackness. You sit up in the bed, throwing off the sheer black sheets and thick blankets. Thankfully, you're fully clothed, although in an old-fashioned and high-collared outfit you don't recognise. Your armour and weapons are missing. Your hand goes to your throat and you find that you're still wearing your necklace. It bears the holy symbol of your chosen god Tyr. The familiar feel of it gives you comfort, and you breathe a tentative sigh of relief. Your breath catches in your chest, though, when you realise that you are not alone. A haughty man with jet black hair and pale white skin tinged with blue steps out from the shadows. He's dressed in an exquisite black cloak lined with crimson silk, layered over a pristine white shirt and coal-black pants. He wears his ebony hair slicked back from his wide forehead in a sharp widow's peak and tucked behind his pointed ears. He's not breathing. You instantly recognise his eyes, which glow with a hellish hue. You last saw them on the road to Waterdeep. He bares his teeth in what he may believe is a welcoming smile. The pointedness of his canine teeth, though, shoots a shudder down your spine. He can only be a vampire. So that's quite a nice overwritten introduction, I would submit. I think you want to lay it on with an absolute trowel if you are doing gothic horror, because that's what a lot of the greats did. It manages to be both overwritten and commendably economical. I am Count Strad von Zarovich, she says, with the accent of an ancient aristocrat. Welcome to Castle Ravenloft, your new home. I am basing the voice on Count von Count out of Sesame Street. I apologise. You steady your voice before you reply. I don't mean to seem ungrateful, you inform him. But this isn't my home. The Count smiles again. It may take time to adjust, but you will come to love Ravenloft once you have been fully recruited. All members of my court do. You stand up to defy the wicked creature. I've no interest in joining your court, nor in spending another moment here. Strahd chuckles. Time has a way of changing minds, and I have as much time as I like. Gives you a shallow bow and makes for the door. I leave you to your own devices. Going a bit Italian now. While you may be my guest here, I ask you to confine yourself to this room and to the lounge next to it, for your own safety. Ah, ah, ah. Also, please remember this. My time on this world may be unlimited, but my patience with those who disrespect my hospitality isn't. 
As the vampire lord strides out of the door, you contemplate your options. Perhaps it would be better to confront him now, but he exudes so much power, you worry that not even Tear could protect you. So again, nicely overwritten, but getting straight to the point. It's very much riffing on Dracula, of course. Uh, this year I did the whole um, Dracula in real time and a couple of years ago I was working on a novel based on Dracula and I read it about eight times in a row so I'm kind of hypersensitive to uh, references to Dracula at this point but we have a number of choices we can climb out of the window which I imagine will lead to a long drop and a sudden stop as they say we can attack Strad or we can escape through the door I don't think attacking Strahd is likely to be a particularly wise plan, so let's escape through the door. As the Count leaves the room, you let the door close behind him. You return to the bed and sit on the edge of it for a moment, as you contemplate the choices you've made in your life that have somehow led you to this moment. Did you offend Tyr in some way? Did he mean for the vampire to capture you as punishment for something you did wrong? Or is this perhaps a test of your faith, or your steadfastness, or your ability to help yourself? Or maybe this has nothing to do with Tyr. Maybe the vampire just saw you and picked you out at random, an unfortunate victim on whom to visit his horrible plans, whatever they may be. Falling to your knees, you pray to Tyr for guidance, but he doesn't answer. Then again, it's rare for gods to communicate directly with their followers, even so devout a priest as you. The need for justice speaks for itself, and you have your studies of Tyr's word to guide you. Still, the time spent in prayer helps to clear your head and strengthen your resolve to find a way out. After rising to your feet, you search the room. If Strahd still has your armour and weapons, he didn't leave them here, which, to be fair, would be a bit of a schoolboy error. There's a large walk-in closet, but there's nothing in it but a dusty black cloak hanging from a hook in the far wall. Donning the cloak, you return to the bedroom. Seeing no other escape, you sidle up to the door and listen at it, wondering if Strahd is on the opposite side waiting for you to emerge. After a long moment, you decide to chance it and crack open the door. It creaks on its ancient hinges with a noise so loud you wonder if it could alert the entire castle. There's a room beyond, although you can't see much of it through the crack. Shoving the door entirely open, you wait in the doorway, breathless, looking for any sign of Strahd or his underlings. Not even a mouse comes to investigate. You breathe again and step over the threshold. Thunder shakes the tower from some distant storm that doesn't seem to have broken yet, at least not that you can see through the wide windows of leaded glass that occupy the opposite wall. Three ornate lanterns hang from the ceiling in this room, and by their dim glow, you can see a pair of overstuffed couches and a bulging bookshelf. There is a picture on this page of a book, a mighty tome that is clearly the fantasy equivalent of clip art. Oh, and on the following page, there is another different picture of Strad, this time dressed in crimson plate mail and looking, I guess, as he did when he was alive. You examine the books, hoping they might provide some clue for escaping your predicament, but the titles prove useless in that regard. They include Embalming, The Lost Art, Life Among the Undead, Learning to Cope, Castle Building 101, and Goats of the Ballinock Mountains. Several of them seem to have been written by Strahd himself. So, a little bit of levity there, uh, indicating that like the original Endless Quest books, this is aimed at a somewhat young audience. I guess after creating that atmosphere, the author did just want to row it back a bit and uh, remind the reader that role-playing is maybe not something you should take 100% seriously. It's been observed by uh, James Holloway of the tremendous role-playing podcast Monster Man that a lot of published role-playing materials is very po-faced but the way the game is played around most tables is anything but it's a lot lighter and a lot sillier and I think this is a nice nod to that reality 
Looking around, you spy another door on the far end of the bookshelf and pad over to it as silently as you can manage. It creaks when you open it, but not nearly as loudly as the door to the bedchamber did. Beyond, you find a smaller room shrouded in darkness. There are no loose lanterns around, only ones attached to bolts or chains, so you go back to the bedroom in which you woke and break one of the posts from the bed. You wind strips of the bedsheets around the end of it, and then you light your makeshift torch using flames from one of the lanterns bolted to the wall near the bookshelf. Now you're ready to deal with whatever the darkness holds for you. Or so you hope. And I feel as though it would have been nice to get a choice about doing that. But it's still a nice, again, very much the sort of thing that role players are likely to do. You return to the darkened room and discover that a portrait of Strahd hangs on the wall to your left. I guess that's the portrait on the facing page. A spiral stairway just beyond the portrait leads upward, and another spiral stairway next to it leads down. You bring your torch closer and see that this image shows Strahd from the days before his transformation. His eyes seem to follow you, no matter where you move. The portrait disturbs you so much that you back away onto the carpet on the far side of the room. As you step upon it, the rug curls at its edges and attacks. Rising, it tries to wrap itself around you, but you leap away before it gets your entire body in its grip, leaving it clinging only to your legs. You slam the torch down onto the rug and it recoils as you singe its threads. Pressing your advantage, you shove the torch into it over and over until the entire thing catches fire. The rug goes up fast and you find yourself grateful that the tower's floor here is made of stone. You look at the portrait of Strahd and find it glaring at you. Leave me alone, you tell it, and you won't share the rug's fate. It's time to move on. So do we go up or do we go down? Always said that in horror films and horror media generally, the silliest thing you can do is try and escape upwards because there's so much less stuff in that direction than there is in the downward direction. So I think we will descend the stairs and try and make it to the ground floor and some kind of exit. And indeed it agrees with me. You don't see how going upward would help you to leave the castle, so you take the spiral staircase down instead. As you go, you come across a number of different landings, but you ignore them and keep going down, down, down. Eventually you reach the bottom of the stairs and see that they emerge into a long hallway filled with still black water as far as you can see by the flickering light of your torch. You decide that this doesn't look inviting. It's one thing to be trapped in Castle Ravenloft, but you'd rather not add soaking wet to your list of miseries. You head back up the stairs to the next landing above instead. There you find an oaken door and push it open. It leads into a large hallway filled to your waist with fog. As you move out into it, you turn to your right and see a dark figure holding a lantern high over its head. It has its back to you and you hold your breath, hoping to avoid detection. I mean, I am holding a large flaming torch. That might make sneaking a little bit more tricky. The figure cocks its head as if it hears you, or, you know, literally just sees us, and then spins about and begins moving in your direction. As it nears with a shuffling gait, you can make out a warped person with fur on one side of his face and scales on the other. He has a hunched back and small tusks jut from his lower jaw. The ears of a large cat sit atop his head and you can hear one of his feet flapping with every step as he nears you. Oh, he says in a dismayed tone. You're one of the master's guests, aren't you? You shouldn't be roaming about the castle like this. It's not permitted, you know. Who are you, you ask, hoping to change the subject? Why, I'm Cyrus. He wheezes with a little cough. Cyrus Bellevue, Count Strahd's faithful servant. I, I live to make the master happy, or at least not quite so angry as he usually is. He gives you a sidelong look. You really ought to return to your chamber. I'd be honoured to lead you back there if you're lost. So there is a uh, picture of Cyrus. It's quite a, a nice picture. Yeah, again, very much in that, that house style. Very, very competently executed. Not 
full of character, but does a good job of hitting all the points of the description. It's it's pretty good. And it's a great choice for a picture as well, because it is the sort of thing that's going to be hard, I think, especially for younger readers to picture. I mean, he certainly is an impressive amalgam of different beast parts. We get sent without any choice to the next section. I just want to stretch my legs for a little bit first, you tell Cyrus. You hope to buy some time before the oddly made person calls Strahd for help. Was he born that way, you wonder? Or did Strahd somehow transform him? In the end, you suppose, it doesn't make much of a difference. The only important thing is that he serves Strahd and he isn't going to help you escape. You think you could take Cyrus down if you needed to, but it seems a shame to harm such a wretched creature unless he forces your hand. Tyr calls you to work towards justice, after all. The master is very strict about how his guests are permitted to behave, Cyrus says, squirming with agitation. If he finds you down here, he won't like it. He won't like it at all. Since he kidnapped me, I don't much care what he likes or what he doesn't like, you say. In fact, making him angry would only make me happy. Cyrus's face twists with dismay. He begins to slap himself on the head over and over, wincing in pain each time. The master will not be pleased. Then he begins to weep openly, although you cannot tell if it's from the pain of his blows or just because he's upset, or indeed both, presumably. Either way, you're not about to try to comfort someone who wants nothing more than to turn you back over to Strad. Instead, you ignore him and poke around the hall. There's a wide set of doors to the left, three different doors in the wall ahead, along with a set of stairs leading upward and a rusty portcullis to the right. Through the bars of the portcullis you can see stacks of wine casks, and you wonder if the wine has gone sour after so many years sitting there untouched. Knock knock, Cyrus says. You're not even sure if he's talking to you, but you decide to play along. Who's there? you respond. The man flinches as if you've brandished a sword at him, then he peers into the darkness towards something you couldn't possibly see and whispers, Master? Then he starts giggling madly, and you wonder who the joke might be on. You shake your head at him and head for the doors to the left. They're banded in steel, but they look more promising than trying your luck with the rusty bars. So, uh, again, the tone veering between traditional gothic overblown emotion and just silliness. No, Cyrus says, shaking his head. Don't go in there. Too dangerous. Far too dangerous. He sidles towards the door through which you entered and beckons for you to follow. Come with me, he says. Can you trust him, you wonder? I don't want to see your master, you say. Cyrus giggles. Uh, no, no, no. He's so pathetic, but maybe he's right. So we can either ignore Cyrus or follow Cyrus. Well, Cyrus is irritating me on two levels. One is telling me a knock-knock joke and a moment of high drama. And the second is not really delivering on any kind of punchline or indeed the rest of the joke. So I'm going to ignore Cyrus. I mean, he could be telling me the truth, but I mean, he's clearly mad as a balloon. So... I think there's a fairly good chance that ignoring him will be the right way to go. You know where Cyrus's loyalties lie, and you're not about to let him lead you back to Strahd's so-called hospitality. If he's afraid to go through those doors to the end of the hall, that's exactly what you are going to do. At least then, you hope, he won't follow you. The doors are heavy, but they're not locked. You pull on the one to the right, and it swings towards you on creaky hinges. Cyrus lets out a little squeal of terror at the noise, flings up his arms and then scutters away. As you walk through the door, a sense of foreboding evil permeates the room, making you want to gag. It stinks of the rot of death and the coppery tang of old blood. The floor is covered with dark stains that you'd rather not think about. The remnants of several oaken tables and chairs lie scattered in splintered pieces. Most of the wood has been shoved against the walls to make room for a newer set of furniture, constructed entirely from human bones. 
This includes a long dining table surrounded by high-backed chairs. The walls and ceiling, which vault 20 feet high, have been decorated with bones as well, attached in intricate patterns that you find disturbing to look at. Worse, though, are the four piles of skulls, one in each corner of the room. Garlands of skulls reach from each of these stacks to a chandelier fashioned from bone that hangs in the centre of the room, right over the dining table. There is a picture of one of the big piles of bones, scarcely the most salient feature of this room, but I guess also one of the ones that's kind of easier to draw. I mean, it's fine as big piles of bones go. Looks like it's escaped from a uh, Warhammer set more than a Dungeons and Dragons set, but hey, lots of people like big piles of skulls. It's not just Warhammer. There are doors that lead out of the room at either end. Both of these are sheathed in bones. The doors you just walked through are bare, but as you look up over your shoulder, you see the skull of a dragon looming over you. You start to think that maybe Cyrus had a point. Not wanting to be crushed, you move out from under the dragon's skull. Leaving the room quickly seems like an excellent idea, so you pick a door fast and head through the one on the left. This leads you to a smaller room that shows signs of a struggle that happened long ago. A handful of skeletons are scattered about the place, laying amid shattered furniture and dented armour. At least no one's gone to the trouble to redecorate the place as they did the dining room. Vampires are always so slovenly in this sort of thing. You'd think with all eternity to go at, they'd be willing to chuck the hoover around once in a while. Like maybe if you actually did some housework from time to time, the weight of eternity would press less heavily upon your soul. An open passageway leads to the right, and you follow it past a set of alcoves that must have once served as quarters, perhaps for the people who were killed in the last room. There's a staircase at the far end leading up. You climb it, hoping to find a lot less death at the top. You emerge in a wide, circular chamber with a passageway that leads left. There's an open spiral staircase that leads up, bereft of any railing, hugging the curves of the room's wall. This must be the base of the castle's north tower. When you left the bedchamber, you'd planned to find your way to the main floor and then look for a way to leave. But when you gaze up, the most amazing sight beckons you higher. A couple of hundred feet above you, a gigantic, blood-red crystal hangs suspended in the tower's heights. It glows with a crimson light and pulsates with the rhythm of a heart as if it's the organ that pumps power throughout the entire complex. As the heart pulses, the entire tower shudders with every beat. You stare up in awe, wondering what kind of crazed magic it represents. Clearly, it must be important to Strahd, and that makes you feel like you might want to destroy it, if only to stop him from kidnapping anyone else, and otherwise terrorising the people of Barovia ever again. You're just not sure that doing so is more important than escaping with your life. So we can either investigate the giant crystal or look for a way out. I feel like the author's doing a good job of following the geography I expect of Castle Ravenloft as laid out in the module, but trying to make sure that we only really hit the most exciting bits. And this is clearly a very exciting bit. The bit of me that knows horror media thinks that no good deed in horror ever goes unpunished. A giant crystal is a tempting thing to try and investigate. Um, I am going to stick with playing this as if I'm in a horror setting where the thing to do is to try and avoid giant glowy blood crystals. And I will try and look for a way out. You take the passageway to the left and find yourself at the base of the turret, just left of the main doors. This would be wonderful if you were skinny enough to slip through one of the tall, narrow windows, but they're barely wide enough for an archer to fire an arrow through, let alone for you to squeeze through. Heading back the way you came, you return to the original tower. You'd rather not go downward to chat with Cyrus once more, so instead you make your way up the massive staircase, bringing you close to the giant crystal floating above. On reaching the first landing, you explore further, but have no more luck, 
so you head back to the tower with the crystal and climb to the next landing. There you discover an archway that leads outside. A ten-foot-wide walkway winds around the front of the castle, jutting out from the main part of the castle to the top of the outer wall that surrounds and protects the entire place. You creep along it, hoping no one spots you. There is a picture of Castle Ravenlost seen from the gate, and it's very nicely executed. It's got a kind of Dutch angle thing going on. There's a pervasive purple and red vibe to it that makes it seem even more menacing and you can see a whole bunch of bats making their way out of it classic gothic castle territory yeah it's a very nice depiction of a brooding menacing castle when you reach the outer wall you see that castle ravenloft sits atop a mountain and that there's nothing but a sheer drop on all sides the mists below are so thick that you cannot even see the floor of the valley you assume must lie below. You consider climbing downward anyway, hoping to find freedom. Maybe you can manage to climb down once you reach the face of the natural cliff, but the stone walls of Ravenloft itself are slick with mist and offer little real purchase. Still, what choice do you have? As you're about to vault over the crenellations and try your weight on some nearby vines, a voice behind you says... You're a brave person, to be sure, but that seems like certain death for you. You spin around to find a handsome, blonde-haired man with pale skin and gaunt cheeks. He offers you a false smile and a shallow bow. My name's Escher. Allow me to welcome you to the ranks of Count Strahd's guests. Rather than return his bow, you shake your head. That's not necessary. I won't be staying. He arches a thin eyebrow at this. You don't wish to accept Strahd's hospitality? How perfectly sensible of you. I don't suppose you'd be willing to show me the way out of this place, you ask. He rubs his chin as he sizes you up. Actually, I would. After all, I hardly need the competition for Strahd's attention, do I? But if I'm going to do that for you, it only seems appropriate that you perform a small service for me you give him a suspicious glare what do you have in mind strad recently brought another guest here a naive young thing named gertruda like i said i don't need the competition if you just help me get rid of her i won't kill her escher chuckles i just need you to take her with you doesn't that seem like the uh, heroic thing to do Maybe it would if it didn't sound so much like a trap. Can you really trust anyone under Strahd's thrall? Um, I'm going to say that, that this vampire is a political animal, like all vampires, and I'm actually going to accept the offer because it seems to me like his interests are best served by me going, I believe that, and his interests are best served by Gertrude going, I believe that as well. I'll help you, you tell Escher. He claps his hands in delight. I don't suppose I have much choice in the matter. Of course you don't, the man says, but it's so refreshing to hear you acknowledge it. Beckoning you with a crooked finger, Escher leads you back into the tower. Instead of going up or down, he moves along the landing and ducks into a darkened hallway you walked past earlier. Then he takes a sharp left and strides up to a wooden door. Once you catch up with him... He opens the door with a flourish and ushers you into a lavish study. Bookshelves filled nearly to bursting line the room and a roaring fire blazes in the hearth. As you walk across a plush rug past the overstuffed chairs and couches arranged here and there, you realise that this is the first room you found in the entire castle that you'd call comfortable. Escher moves past you and brings you to a wide pair of doors set in the opposite wall. And here we are, he says. The next room is the biggest bedchamber you've ever seen. Tall white candles burn throughout, and by their sweet-scented flames, you can make out a massive canopied bed against the wall to the right. Straight across from you stretches a wide window, looking out over the mountainous approach to Castle Ravenloft. A wide-eyed young woman, dressed in a nightgown, sits up in the bed and greets you with a dreamy smile. Oh, hello, she says. 
Are you a friend of Strahd? We're here to rescue you, you tell her. Get dressed and we'll get out of here. We don't have much time. Rescue me? She laughs. From what? A life of luxury in the company of the most sophisticated people I've ever met? So then you realise that she hasn't figured out who these people are or what she's gotten herself into. Your life is in danger, you inform her. As is mine, every moment we linger here. She folds her arms across her chest. Then you should leave. I'm staying. So we can either drag her with us or leave her here. I don't think you can realistically rescue people against their will, so I think I will sadly have to leave this naive young lady where she is and try and make it out on my own. If this were a, a role-playing game, this would be a, an ideal point for the sort of socially skilled members of the party to do a bit of the old persuasion, but uh, persuasion doesn't seem to be an option here, and it doesn't seem as though that would even be the particular forte of a priest of tear anyway, so uh, yeah, leaving her here seems the only sane option. Fine, you tell Gertruda. I don't need your drama anyhow. I'm leaving now, with or without you. As Tyr teaches, you can't save those who don't want to be saved. The young woman gives you a grim but determined look. Something insane dances in her eyes, and you wonder if you've made the wrong decision by leaving her in the Count's clutches. Despite that, you turn your back on her and nod to Escher to show you the way out. That's when the young woman grabs you by the shoulder and hauls you around to face her. You can't fool me! She shouts in your face. You're going to try and steal Strahd from me! Stunned by the woman's ferocity, you reel backward. If she thinks you want to have anything to do with Strahd, her adoration for the Count has unbalanced her. Seeing the shock on your face, she senses her chance. She leaps at you, knocking you onto your back and landing on top of you. You don't want to hurt her, but she's not giving you much choice. Get off me, you shout at her. You're insane. You claim to want to leave all this behind, she laughs. And you think I'm the crazy one? I don't believe you. No one's that nuts. Escher should be helping you, but he comes to Gertrude's aid rather than yours. He kneels behind your head and pins your arm to the floor. Tears, hammer, you shout at him. What are you doing? I started this day with two rivals for the Count's affection in the castle, he says with a smile. I'm happy to reduce that number by one. Doesn't matter how. Kind of suggesting that uh, Strahd is bisexual, which I kind of approve of. You struggle against them both, but Escher is supernaturally strong. He alone would probably be enough to overpower you, but with Gertruda sitting on you as well, you can barely move. No, you say. Gertruda! If you kill me, what's to stop Strahd from killing you? Kill you? Gertruda says with genuine surprise on her face. I'm not going to kill you. But I'm sure once you're unconscious, this man here will help me to eject you from the castle. Although, Escher says as he opens his mouth wide, exposing his vicious fangs, killing him would be a lot more final. Gertruda's eyes open wide at the sight of the fangs, and when Escher plunges them into your neck, she squeaks in panic and jumps to her feet. But it's too late for you. As your vision starts to go black, you offer one last prayer to Tear. If there's any justice in this world, he'll help Gertruda to escape from this place, even though you can't. The end. So, that was a fun tour round Castle Ravenloft, coming to a sticky end at the hands of a uh, sexually ambiguous vampire. I think I will leave it there. I, the book is sufficiently short that uh, I don't want to go back and uh, replay from where I died. Uh, that seems like it would be robbing anyone who wants to uh, actually play it of the uh, experience of what I think is genuinely on this first reading quite a fun little riff on the choose your own adventure format i'm going to go away and delve more deeply into the secrets of castle ravenloft but i will be back in just a few seconds for you with some closing remarks tatty bye <laughs>
I'm going to try and keep this brief because in many ways this is a fairly simple book, but the basic headline is that I really enjoyed it. My expectations were not all that high. It felt like this had every chance of being a badly executed cash-in for nostalgic nerds like me, but I think the author took their brief seriously, and I think they tried to execute something that can be enjoyed on its own merits. It's decently written, I reckon. It's not going to win any awards or anything, but the prose manages to strike a good balance between action and atmosphere. I was never left in any doubt that I was in a spooky castle dealing with spooky things. There's a number of game book authors we've come across over the years who've shown an inability to keep their minds on a single story or theme, and have wound up striking out apparently at random, just writing the first thoughts that come into their head. So this feels a lot more tightly focused, which I can't imagine that Wizards of the Coast would have allowed it out the door if it hadn't been tightly focused, but even so, the author's shown that they have the basic craft needed to deliver on the promise of the premise. I have to say this one feels especially pleasant after trawling through Chasms of Malice. That one had all the emotional depth of a shopping list, and I like that there's plenty of descriptions of how your character reacts emotionally to the strange events which befall them. I will say that I do still find American idioms a little bit jarring in fantasy literature, but I recognise that's my problem. There's no actual reason that modern American English should be any more jarring than modern British English in a fantasy context. I guess I'm just a lot more used to modern British English as an idiom, and a lot of my favourite fantasy writers wrote in a British English idiom. Now, in terms of structure, this is fairly simple. There's some simple branching paths which take you and your character all over the bizarre and horrifying Castle Ravenloft, but there's nothing where the structure becomes in any way, shape or form intricate. And most of those branching paths just lead you to different endings, most of them bad. But what I will say is that despite the fact that you will die a lot when you read this book, it goes out of its way to try not to make you, the reader, feel stupid. I go on at length about how arbitrary game books can be and how that's an essential feature of the format and how you have to accept it to at least some degree. There are some choices here that clearly feel flagged as bad ideas, such as attacking Strahd the moment you get an opportunity. But wherever there is a choice, the text makes an effort to justify why your character might have made that choice. And even when it leads to inevitable death, there's a sense that the character you are playing supports your decision-making. That's a slightly weird thing to say, so let me unpack it a little bit. Some adventure game books will revel in pointing out when you've made a foolish decision. As a stylistic choice, that can work absolutely fine. I think it generally works best when you've got a lot of different choices, so that only infrequently do you end up feeling like an idiot. I, for one, get enough of that in my day-to-day -day life, apart from anything else. And those are books which generally emphasise the game side of game books, and so long as they're playing fair, the odd bit of shade thrown in the direction of the player is reasonable, even enjoyable. Choose your own adventure books have many fewer choices, and those choices usually lead to longer sections. So the pleasure is less often about finding the right path and more about exploring the different possible ways for your story to end. So when I read fighting fantasy books as a child, I just wanted to beat the game. Uh, hence the extensive use I made of the Sausagey Finger bookmarks. When I read Choose Your Own Adventure books, which I was much less familiar with, I generally did just want to find all the different endings, and you don't want to feel like a fool for playing the game book in the way that the format encourages you. And this book does a good job of keeping your character feeling like a hero, even when it's killing them over and over again. Unlike the first Endless Quest book we covered, where there were a fair few good, or at least okay endings. Here the emphasis is on various forms of death. Other outcomes are available, 
but the majority of endings are fatal in some way. And like my favourite Beneath Nightmare Castle, there's an inventiveness to the fatalities that make them less of a chore than a, a dark pleasure, and that suits the gothic horror vibe of the source material. I think you would be a bit disappointed to be poking around a vampire's castle and not come across many different ways to meet a sticky end. Whether that approach would land so well in a book based on a more traditional Dungeons and Dragons heroic adventure is a different story, but here it feels entirely appropriate to the material. This ties into something else I really like about the book. I think it does a great job of delivering a gruesome, horror-tinged adventure in a way that doesn't feel like it's going to upset its target audience. This is clearly aimed at younger readers, so it's careful to mix in some silliness with the vampires, ghosts, werewolves, and other classic horror tropes. Now, obviously, as a 40-something-year-old man without any children, my opinions on this might be termed speculative at best. But in my own defence, I am frequently extremely immature, and I still laugh at Roadrunner cartoons more than I probably should, considering my actual age on paper. This feels like it's playing to a young audience without patronising them too much, and I think that's a delicate balance to try and strike. In terms of its design, even though from a branching path perspective it's pretty rudimentary, I think it's actually very clever in how it sticks to the map of Castle Ravenloft but doesn't get caught up in endless hallways. It feels as though the geography of the original module has been preserved, but it makes a point of only dwelling on the most memorable features. So you can go into different areas, and the author makes a point of pointing out when you can see other areas that you may or may not have visited before. And there's even a maze which is dealt with by telling you you've become lost in a maze. And that is actually, secretly, a really good way of dealing with a maze in a game book, or indeed in a role-playing game. They're such a common feature of gaming, and they're almost always ferociously dull to deal with in practice. I've always dread it in a game book when we come to a maze section, because I know I'm just going to be reading out. You come to the end of a corridor, there's a left and right turn. Which way do you want to go? At the end of this corridor, there's a picture of a marmoset and a left and right turn. Which way do you want to go? Really, really tedious. And I think there's a kind of genius to telling the player, oh yeah, you go into the maze, you get lost. Let's focus on how you actually deal with the fact that you're lost in a maze. And that's cutting straight through to the most interesting facet of the experience for me. Once someone is good and lost, there's a bunch of different things that can come into play. Have you got enough food and water? Do you have any clues that can help you get out? What other people or things or traps might be lurking in the catacombs with them? And I think there's probably a really, really good game book in trying to come up with a maze that never actually feels like a maze and I might try and have to adapt this approach myself at some point because it feels as though there's actually some really really interesting design space to explore there. The other praiseworthy feature I want to draw attention to is how well this functions as a kind of primer for how one might play Dungeons and Dragons in general and a cleric in particular. While Warlock of Firetop Mountain acts as a decent enough beginner's guide on the gaming side of role-playing. It introduces you to dice mechanics and the kinds of choices that a basic dungeon might present you with. I think Escape from Castle Ravenloft focuses on introducing more of the character-based side of the hobby. It's less about giving you a tremendous sense of agency and more about giving you appropriate examples. So our nameless hero gets to cast a bunch of cleric spells, they get to turn a bunch of undead and ponder repeatedly whether the course of action they've just taken would meet with the favour of Tyr, the god of justice that they serve. And even though that doesn't introduce any mechanical D&D &D systems, it nonetheless gives you a good primer for playing a cleric. 
I know virtually nothing about the Forgotten Realms setting and I don't really play modern D&D because I've got massive issues with it as a product line. But after reading this, I feel like I'd be very comfortable having a stab at playing a Cleric of Tear in someone else's Forgotten Realms game and doing that without embarrassing myself. I feel like I know the sort of spells I might be able to have access to and the sort of powers that I might have access to. I can see the game system lurking in the background of this book without it ever becoming centre stage. And I think that's actually very clever. Following on from that, it also does a good job of drawing a distinction between monsters and non-player characters. There's plenty of threat from ravening beasts of varying sorts, but there's also been some care taken with the supporting cast. You will meet a variety of people that you can talk to. Some of them will try and help you. Some of them will try and kill you. Sometimes they just have something else on their mind other than you. Mostly, there's some variety of insane. This is, I think, a great way of teaching the novice that there's ways of dealing with strange and unusual things that don't involve violence and also that just because something looks weird and unsettling that doesn't mean you can't start with a conversation and try and find some common cause. Speaking as a weird looking ginger I can completely get behind this message. I mean there's also a murderous mechanical jester something which tickles me for being the embodiment of the truism that horror and slapstick are only a whisker apart at the best of times. I also like that they're drawn as much from fantasy gaming as from gothic horror. Uh, Castle Ravenloft may be a descendant of Castle Dracula, but it isn't the same thing. You could write a great game book, basically reenacting Jonathan Harker's escape from Dracula's clutches, but I don't think that would realistically let you summon a giant floating hammer to smack hungry wolves with, which this book definitely does. This has, in a sense, restored my faith in the validity of choose-your-own-adventure books as an approach which can exist within the same context as what I might sniffily refer to as more detailed, more in-depth, more creatively rich game books. And I, I, it sort of indicates that they're not trying to do exactly the same thing and what they do, if they do it well, still has value. Whereas Raid on Nightmare Castle felt like a slapdash attempt to marry Dungeons and Dragons with Choose Your Own Adventure, this feels immensely more considered and as a result is much more successful. It shows you can have a book which provides a less immediate sense of agency, but which by virtue of how it's written, can still make you feel like you're participating in the adventure rather than just reading the adventure. I wonder whether there is still a place for this sort of introduction to Dungeons and Dragons in this day and age. Would kids still benefit from this kind of on-roading into the wider hobby ecosystem? When I think about how I got interested in fantasy gaming as a small boy, the pickings were slim, to say the least. This would be going from the middle 1980s. I think my first awareness of gaming as a potential hobby probably came from seeing the movie E.T., where the characters are briefly seen playing Dungeons & Dragons. After that, I definitely became obsessed with the D&D spin-off cartoon for a few years, Now, that might have been cheesy and basic, but that show did a great job of selling the idea that in this fantasy world, you could be some kind of different version of yourself, one with access to magical weapons and tools. It had a really big impact on me. After that, I think probably came adventure game books themselves, which I completely devoured. And also, I think I read a first edition copy of the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Player's Handbook, which was in my local library and which I never really understood because I was under 10 when I was reading it, but which still fascinated me and exerted a powerful impact on my imagination, even though I didn't really have the faintest clue what it was and what you were supposed to do with it. 
Later still, I read a novel called Hobgoblin, which was a kind of pound shop version of Mazes and Monsters, something that came out of the Dungeons and Dragons satanic panic of the 1980s, and which, despite its intent to portray role-playing as the preserve of the almost deranged, did give some of the first pointers I can remember about how to actually run a game as the Dungeon Master. There were lots of things that sold me on the idea of playing a character in a role-playing game, but very little out there that really sold me on the fantasy of creating an adventure. And actually, Hobgoblin did that really well. And I was always more drawn to running games than I was to playing in them. I love playing in games, but I am a terrible, terrible control freak, creatively speaking. And I find it very hard in my head not to backseat Games Master when I'm playing in someone else's game. I just sort of get lost thinking about how I would put together set pieces, even if I think the set pieces are really good, which, you know, I often do. I'm not saying that I, I have some kind of impossibly high standards that I hold all other Games Masters to. I, I've enjoyed a wide variety of different games in different styles run by all kinds of brilliant people. But I'm always thinking about, oh, that was interesting. I wonder how I would go about running it. And that's been there pretty much since the earliest days of my gaming experience. I think a book like this, which is tied to an existing module, which I could have read and maybe gone on to try and run, probably very badly, um, Castle Ravenloft, would have been great for me because there's nearly as much in here for a fledgling games master as I think there is for a fledgling player. Sort of introduces particularly how NPCs work from a GM's point of view. Okay, I'm going to try and persuade this character to do something a little bit foolish and see if I can catch them out. Now, nowadays, I don't like that kind of adversarial approach to running games. But when I was 11 or 12, the adversarial approach was all I knew. And I would have gone, ah, yes, here are a bunch of ridiculous ways to slaughter my party and just gone to it with a will. So I think there is still something in here for both the novice player and the novice games master to enjoy. But we do have to recognise that we're living in a very different media landscape. Wizards of the Coast have managed to get Dungeons and Dragons closer to the mainstream than ever before. I perversely have become more and more interested in game books as a medium in and of themselves rather than as an adjunct or as an introduction to role-playing games. There's a big budget Dungeons and Dragons film on the way, a new Baldur's Gate video game on the way. It's crossed over with Magic the Gathering, also owned by Wizards of the Coast. It's made its way into Stranger Things. Anyone who is curious about what a slightly smug and self-satisfied game of Dungeons and Dragons sounds like can enjoy about a million hours of critical role, and they can come away with a clear idea of what a gaming session might look like will be at one particular kind of gaming session. There's how-to guides all over the places, so many actual play podcasts. Is there still a place for Endless Quest when all the information you need is in some ways right at your fingertips? I would submit that this book makes the case that there is, because there's no better tool for getting inside an experience than the written word. A book can take you into someone else's head in a way few other mediums can. Escape from Castle Ravenloft, for all it's a simple affair, does a grand job of bringing a fantasy adventure to life. And I would certainly recommend it to anyone trying to help a youngster understand what fantasy gaming might be a bit like and whether it might be for them. It does help that the production values are so high as well. There's been some care and attention lavished on this, which helps make it into an object that's simply a pleasure to spend time with and I suspect I might be picking up one or two more of these to see if they are also as enjoyable as I found this one. Well that's I think everything I can say about this slender volume. I hope you've enjoyed spending time with it as much as I have. I'll be back later this month with a main episode where we're going to be looking at Battle Blade Warrior, one that I've been looking forward to for a long long time. In the meantime, you can get in touch by emailing me at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. But until next time, thanks very much for listening, take care, and I'll see you soon.